Thank you, Lord. I'm so glad I learned to trust him. And so we're so glad we learned to trust you, Lord. And in whatever situation we face, Lord, help us. Help us trust you. You are a precious Savior, healer, and friend. And we thank you now that we can come to your word right now and just let it speak to our hearts. And we pray that our hearts are open to hear it and receive it. So thank you for your word. Thank you for the letter to the Corinthians. Bless this time, Lord, that, that we might grow and, and be changed and be the, become increasingly those new creations you have created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, if you've joined us this morning from out of town, we're glad you came to worship with us. And our, we happen to be in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. We're working our way through the letter to the Corinthians, and we're in verse 18. To, we're going to be reading verses 18 to 25. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read the passage to you? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in wisdom, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So verse 18 through 25 that we just read is really the logical outworking of the verse that's before it, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, Paul intentionally focused on proclaiming what Christ had done on the cross for us and expected the power of that message to be what, what changes hearts. That sacrificial love that was displayed there would be what was the power to convert the soul. Paul didn't rely on his eloquence or rhetorical skill like most of the philosophers in, in the Greek world did at the time but simply pointed to the wonder of Jesus' sacrifice and believed that it had the power to change lives. And, and many of us can say, amen, it does, it did, amen? 
And he goes on to write in verse 18, our passage for today, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, if you, if you talk to someone into believing, if you're so skilled at your way you use language and reason and logic that you convert them into believing, someone else can come along and convince them that they shouldn't believe. Amen? If it's all in, in reason and logic and, and in the way we use language, then someone's going to come along that's more skillful and convince you the other way. But when people are confronted with the love of God demonstrated on the cross and the Holy Spirit helps them see what Jesus did for us, that which we couldn't do for ourselves, then the power of that truth grabs a hold of our hearts. The cross demonstrates the justice we deserve, and that's convicting. But it also demonstrates the love of God that would go to such an extent to save us. That's humbling, but it's also incredibly attractive. The world makes a concerted effort to attack the real meaning of the crucifixion and resurrection. You know, today, one of the big things that skeptics bring up is they'll say, what kind of a God would brutally kill his child? Well, that's really kind of an overly simplistic attack, but it demonstrates how the world, that is those who are perishing, look at the cross as foolishness. The answer to the question is really easy. It's a, what kind of a God would do that? A God who will not compromise his justice but loves us with great compassion, who knew the sun would rise from the dead and planned an incredible good that would come out of that one day of suffering. That's the kind of God. But that honest answer won't change a heart. It, may be, it would be better to ask, how could God the Father and the Son love us in our sinful condition so much that they would agree that the Son must lay down his life to save us so that justice could be met and yet mercy and love prevail. Antagonists are often unreasonable and only thinking of the next line of attack and only the Holy Spirit can give the right words and the right illustrations at the right time that's gonna break through those walls of doubt and that unbelievers put up and have them really truly consider the love of God for them the love we just sang about. Sometimes a true story, even a personal one, has more power to, to get a person's attention and have them consider than a reasoned argument does. The gospel seems so clear and wonderful to us because we've received that. We let that conviction touch our hearts. We let the love of God grip our hearts and our eyes were open to the truth of what he did for us. The world of Paul's day was uh, is at least as divided as our world is today. You know, they, they were Romans and there were barbarians. There were slaves and there were free. There, and from a Jewish perspective, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. Everyone was in a camp, divided up. And even in, in, the, in the free society, there were segments of the society that you didn't, didn't, you wanted to attain to a higher level, but it was almost impossible. But Paul sees as God sees and that 
God sees that there are just two, the perishing and those who are being saved. That's how the world's really divided up. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Do you see the world like that? When we are born again, race, gender, nationality, uh, education, our social status all really become inconsequential. We become one in him. Our only distinction is whether a person is in Christ or is perishing. You know, denominational labels sometimes uh, we can tend to think, oh, he's a Methodist or he's a Presbyterian and therefore, but really what we should do is say, is he perishing or does he know Jesus? Is he in Jesus or is he perishing? Notice that the expression is being saved. We've seen this a lot lately in our Bible, our studies through uh, uh, Galatians and now in Corinthians. So here again, we're seeing this concept of now, but not yet. In other words, God has saved us and calls us sanctified because what Jesus has already done for us. But we are in the process of being saved and being sanctified. We're working out experientially in our daily life. So from the heavenly perspective, it is done. From our earthly perspective here, in time, we're in process. Amen? We're all a work in progress. If any of you are done, let me know, because I, I want to learn from you. <laughs> but if the great apostle Paul said, I haven't yet attained shortly before he died, I uh, doubt that any of us are there. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul always proves his point by quoting scripture. He makes a, a point and then he... Uh, he wants you to understand that it's truth that he's teaching, so he backs it up by scripture. And we should do the same, amen? His point comes from Isaiah 29. And it's that it's not wisdom that converts us, but rather the power, it's the power of the cross. In Isaiah 29, God was rebuking the Jews for their routine obedience without worshiping from the heart. They were going through the motions. To the un ungodly, it's a warning. Isaiah 29 is a warning. And to those who would hear and believe, Isaiah 29 was full of promise. Paul quoted verse 14, which warned that God was doing something the wise and the discerning would miss altogether. It was true then, and it was being repeated in an even more significant way in the cross. What wise and discerning person stood on Calvary and said, look what, what God has done. Look what a glorious thing. He's saving us by coming down and becoming flesh and dying for our sins. There was no one there that said that. Not a soul. Even those that lived with Jesus for three and a half years weren't there. even though Jesus began quoting Psalm 22 to help direct them back to the fact that what he was doing would be something that would change the world and bring people into the kingdom of God, they still didn't get it. 
What wise and discerning man was waiting at the tomb for the resurrection, even though Jesus told them multiple times he would rise after three days? You know, the wisest men in that culture at the time would be those in the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and they, they considered themselves to know the scriptures thoroughly. They could see the signs that Jesus was, was doing were messianic signs. But even then, they did not realize what he had done on the cross. And only two out of the 70 believed. The vast majority of scholars scoff at the thought of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. There was a, way back when the movie The Passion came out, we had a, a debate at one of the churches here. Uh, I shouldn't say a debate, um, but it ended up being a debate. And they, they got together about five members of the different churches and denominations. And we met at uh, Church of the Red Rocks. And we were going to talk about the movie, The Passion. And out of those five church leaders of different groups, I was the only one that believed that the blood of Jesus Christ was necessary for our salvation. That what Jesus did there was paying our penalty. It is really sad. <laughs> well, they, they have all kinds of beliefs. But basically, it was that he was a good man who died before his time. And they saw me as a fool. And really, they fulfilled the 2,700-year-old prophecy, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The cross destroys the wisdom of the wise. The place where God has supremely destroyed all human Arrogance and pretension is the cross. Verse 20, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The promise in Isaiah 29 was really addressed to the disabled and the meek and the poor. How many times has the wisdom of the world been wrong? Boy, lately it's really common, isn't it? <laughs> Those of you who are old enough to remember, uh, there was a time, I think it was in the 70s, we were being warned that we were entering into a new ice age. Do you remember that? And then after that, it was global warming. And then when things didn't quite go that way, they changed it to climate change. Well, of course the climate changes. <laughs> Did you know that last season was the coldest uh, temperature on record in Antarctica? They had the coldest winter ever recorded. Somehow we got to fit that into climate change. But <laughs> when I was in college, and I began my uh, chemistry class in college, and you know we get this nice big thick book and a workbook for our labs and everything. And the first thing that professor, it was a Christian college, the first thing the professor said was, in three years, your book won't be any good because science is so constantly changing. And I thought, wow, and here we are really thinking we got it all figured out, you know? The prevailing philosophies of the world are ever-changing, but one thing never changes, the Word of God. 
I'm not suggesting education is pointless. It's very useful. But we have to recognize it's ever-changing. And what we think about the physical world and the philosophies of man will really turn out to be foolishness in the end. What is certain and infinitely more important is what God has done for us. The prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, the offer of forgiveness provided through the cross, and spiritual life in him. Blinded do these wonders and gifts of all gifts, those who are perishing destroy their own lives, indulging in destructive physical pleasures they laud as self-actualizing. You know, every poll that's been done on human relationships has shown that a lifelong heterosexual relationship that are faithful to each other are the happiest and the most fulfilling. So why do cultures around the world ignore this verifiable fact? It's because we have a sinful nature that rebels against God. And what do you know? The Bible's true. God made foolish the wisdom of this world. We've been watching the the Truth Project on Friday evenings. And in one of our recent episodes, we saw how in a single cell in in the human body, in one single cell, There are thousands of various microbots, little tiny machines that go around, and each one has its own function and knows what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to spell check this. It's supposed to zip this open. It's supposed to deliver this thing to that thing. All these little machines inside one human cell. And you know what the the biologists say today is you keep seeing order, but you have to keep reminding yourself it's an accident. It is humorous, (laughs) but it's also very sad that they can't really come to grips with what they're looking at because if you do, you have to acknowledge there's a designer, and if there's a designer, he planned our lives, and he has a purpose for our lives, and... We owe him everything. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. No one using the wisdom of man could ever have predicted or imagined the wonder of what God has done for us in Jesus. Only by revelation of the spirit did the prophets foretell it. And even after the fact, man's wisdom can't understand it. But when we proclaim the gospel to a heart that's been prepared to hear by the work of the Spirit, then there's joy and transformation. Eyes are opened, as Isaiah predicted in the same chapter of Isaiah 29, verse 18. And I think he says that eyes of the blind will see and deaf ears will be opened. And I think as Isaiah wrote that, he was probably understanding that that's spiritual. Although Jesus fulfilled it literally, and that's partly because Hebrews understand, Hebrew people understand that the physical world is a picture of the spiritual world. And so of course, if he's gonna open our spiritual eyes, he's able to open blind eyes as well. And if he's gonna open our spiritual ears, he can open the ears of the deaf as well. Well, Jesus fulfilled these literally. I think the emphasis was spiritual in Isaiah 29. 
We are transformed from the dominion of Satan into the kingdom of God and adopted as sons and daughters of God, princes and princesses. God was not looking for the highest or the best people to convey his message. He picked a Christian killer, some fishermen, a hated tax collector, and the like, so we would not lean on the wisdom of men. It seemed like folly to start his kingdom with these men and this message of grace through the cross, but that's just the kind of message fallen mankind needs. This is just the kind of salvation that's for the least of these, for the simplest, for the sin sick, for those who realize there's no other hope for them. The world says a God who would sacrifice his son is horrible, but we see a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son to save us, knowing his death would defeat death and give us eternal life. What a contrast in perspectives, isn't it? They say our belief is folly, and we see their rejection of the most magnanimous gift ever offered as utter folly. Verse 22, for the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Jews wanted signs like the ones that God gave Moses to convince, um, remember when Moses came to the, the children of Israel in bondage in Egypt and God had given Moses those signs. They wanted the Messiah to present something like that to say that, see, I'm from God. So they asked him a number of times, what sign do you give that we might believe? how they'd seen incredible signs. I mean, they even asked him that after the feeding of the 5,000. You're just going, what does he got to do? Moses was given those two signs, a leprous hand. You know, he put his hand in his cloak. He pulled it out. It was leprous. He put it in, and it was healed. And the rod that became a snake, and he'd grab it, and it would become a rod again. He had those two signs. And the Messiah was predicted to be like Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15. So they wanted a similar kind of signs that, that was given to Moses. Jesus said, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. In other words, he would be in the heart of the earth for days and then back again. Jesus fulfilled so many prophecies that should have been signs to the Jews who knew the scripture. In the Gospel of John, John refers to certain miracles that Jesus did as signs because he knew they were messianic signs. Nicodemus told Jesus they knew no one could perform the miraculous signs that Jesus was doing if God were not with him. And while Jesus did give them conclusive signs, they were seeking signs that benefited them, such as the ousting of the Roman Empire or the freedom from ta taxation. If Jesus performed signs on demand, he would be performing to be assessed by man. Jesus only acted at the Father's leading. D.A. Carson writes, thus the demand for signs becomes a prototype for every conditioned every condition human beings raise as a barrier to being open to God. I'll devote myself to this God if he heals my child. 
I'll follow this Jesus if I can maintain my independence. I will happily become a Christian if God proves himself to me. I will turn from my sin and read the Bible if my marriage gets sorted out to my satisfaction. I'll acknowledge Jesus as Lord if he performs the kind of miracle on demand that removes my doubt. In every case, I'm assessing him. He is not assessing me. I'm not coming to him on his terms. Rather, I'm stipulating terms that he must accept if he wants the privilege of my company. Jews demand signs. Greeks, on the other hand, were very influenced by logic and rhetoric, but only that which fit into their structured philosophies. The gospel is quite logical, but logic relies on a common understanding of the facts. And the Greeks had preconceived ideas of what the facts should be. Jews and Greeks had a different worldview based on their different understanding of the basic facts, like who is God, what is he or they like, what does he or they expect of us. And since Jesus didn't follow their assumption of the facts, they considered Christians foolish. A God who would die on a criminal's cross seemed ridiculous to the Greeks. The Greco-Roman gods were aloof and more concerned about themselves than mankind. So those who were in that culture asked why a God would allow himself to be crucified. It was unthinkable to them. Both Jews and Greeks were looking for a God who would fit their preconceived notions. Both wanted a God they could examine and approve of. The creatures telling the creator what he should be like, and that's delusional arrogance. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. To both Jew and Gentile, a crucified Messiah seemed in an unacceptable concept, like almost as an oxymoron. Jews knew to be hung on a tree meant to be cursed. They just didn't see that it was for their sins that Jesus came under that curse. You know, um, the earliest picture of the crucifixion is uh, etched in plaster around 200 AD. It's a picture of a man on a cross and the man has the head of a donkey. And kneeling in front of the cross is a little figure of a man and somebody wrote in Greek, Alexamenos worships his God. That's how Greeks and Romans thought of Christians worshiping a savior that was crucified as stupid enough to worship a donkey. The word Paul used translated folly here also can be translated mania. In other words, Gentiles didn't just see Christians as misled fools, but rather as dangerous maniacs who worshiped a dead criminal. And that idea is still alive in the world today, that Christians are dangerous. You know, I've always thought, why in the world is uh, uh, Kim Jong-un or, or Putin or uh, the leader of China so worried about Christians? 
They have all this power. They can crush them. They can throw them in prison, and they do. Why? Why, why, does, why do they feel threatened? I think they know the power of the gospel, the power of God to set people free. To those of us whose eyes are open, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we see the cross and we see the wondrous display of love the world will ever witness. It demonstrates the power of God to enter his creation and save lost sinners in the midst of their rebellion. It shows the wisdom of God in making what seemed impossible an accomplished fact. To reconcile justice and the grace of God took the incredible wisdom and love of God. Praise God. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's thoughts are so much higher than our own. We could never have imagined a way for justice and love to meet. We could never have hoped for such a great display of love from our creator. We would never think of death being defeated by entering into death. How great is our God. Paul has clearly identified this dividing line in the world. There are those who think God becoming a man to die for us is foolishness. And there are those of us who see it as the greatest display of love ever presented. Pride will keep the former thinking that they're good enough for God. The conviction of the Holy Spirit and resulting humility has the latter ever thankful that their sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. To which group do you belong? The only ones in between are those in the valley of decision and they'll end up on one side or the other. The perishing are those who are being saved. Pastor Stephen Um wrote, no mere human in his or her right mind or otherwise would have dreamed up God's scheme for redemption through a crucified Messiah. It's too preposterous too humiliating for God. And I would add that such an understanding of what justice should demand and of the depravity of our sins is also too humiliating for the common person to consider. That's why we balk at the concept of hell. Such great love is also hard for us to fathom because we personally fall so short of it and we don't have anything really to compare it to other than the perfect marriage of which there are so few. Think of the irony of what Paul's declaring. The Jews wanted signs of a powerful deliverer Messiah in the line of Moses or David. And God sent his only son and through the cross delivered us from the greatest enemy ever, death and hell. That's infinitely more powerful than any Jewish hero of history. The Greeks take pride in their wisdom, and in the cross we see the wisdom that was way beyond the world's wisest could comprehend. God demonstrated his great power and wisdom by meeting both the demand for justice and his love for mankind through the cross. 
Again, quoting D.A. Carson, this is much more radical than saying that God has more wisdom than human beings or that he's stronger than human beings as if we're dealing with mere degrees of wisdom or power. No, we're dealing with polar opposites. Human wisdom and strength are from God's perspective, rebellious folly and moral weakness. And the moment when God most dramatically discloses his own wisdom and own strength, the moment when his own dear son is crucified, although it's laughed out of court by this tawdry wisdom of this rebellious world, by the pathetic strength of the self-deceived, is nevertheless the moment of divine wisdom and divine power. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. My prayer is that you've received the invitation from God and had your eyes and ears opened to the wonder and power of the wisdom God displayed on the cross that you might be born again and be filled with the love of God. Amen. Jill, would you close us in a song and then I'll give the benediction.